Welcome to MedTech Talk, a weekly sit-down with the innovators, investors, and executives leading the MedTech sector. Now, here's your host, Tom Salemi. Hi, welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. I'm your host, Tom Salemi. We are less than one week away from the MedTech Investing Conference. It takes place on May 6th at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel. Uh, if you have not registered, there's still time to do so. Go to medtechconference.com. That's the URL, medtechconference.com. You'll see our agenda. You'll see uh, the speaker lineup, and you'll see the opportunity to uh, to register, big old register button right there. We hope you will sign up and uh, join the hundreds of medtech professionals in attendance. The uh, conference is uh, is going to be larger than last year's, which is a, a sign of optimism, I think, in the sector. And uh, with all the discussions of IPOs and M&As, I think it's going to be a, a very uh, a very engaging and I, th- I hope a very encouraging discussion about medtech. But always uh, there is cause uh, of concern or at least some caution. And one of the panels that likely will hit upon that is the view from Capitol Hill. Today's podcast guest is Mark Leahy. He's the president and CEO of the Medical Device Manufacturers Association. Mark is a, a fixture in medtech and, uh, and a real uh, champion on Capitol Hill for, uh, for the sector. And in this podcast, he uh, talks about uh, a new concern of MDMAs. In fact, uh, the MDMA issued a letter, issued a letter uh, just last week uh, for a warning against uh, or at least sharing its concerns about an act called H.R. 9, the Innovation Act, which was drafted uh, to take some of the uh, punch out of patent trolls. But within his language is a real risk for medtech. Uh, in fact, it could really open up medtech investors to some liabilities and further risks that they don't currently have. So this is certainly something that we all need to be aware of and uh, we need to help uh, MDMA and other groups fight against. So Mark will talk about the Innovation Act in today's podcast, and we'll also hit upon the device tax. Uh, Mark is not all doom and gloom. He offers some encouraging words about the device tax and about the sense of bipartisanship on Capitol Hill. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to having you at the uh, at the conference next week on, on May 6th. Uh, you've got a, a great panel that you'll be part of, uh, the, the view from Capitol Hill. Uh, any, there'll obviously be a lot to talk about. Uh, I thought the medical device tax would be not one in one A, but uh, the uh, letter you issued recently about the Innovation Act, uh, HR nine, uh, and the impact it might have on patents, was a uh, kind of eye opening. Uh, can you tell a little, us a little bit about it and what the impact might be on the medtech industry? Absolutely, and and, and I'll say you know the, the device tax I think is still a, a top priority, but uh, as you mentioned, the patent bill hasn't got as much visibility, but has been moving through Capitol Hill very, very quickly. And as you know, and the attendees of your meeting, if you're a small company, your IP is one of the most valuable assets you have to attract investment, venture capital, uh, and also provide uh, you the freedom to operate and, and to develop that technology. And just a few years back, uh, Congress passed the American Events Act, um, which we're actively involved with, that initially started off w- far skewed towards the megatech companies, the Googles, the Microsofts, the Apples. But we partnered with the you know, pharma and bio universities, high-tech venture capitalists, and we're able to kind of you know, get the most troubling provisions knocked out and, and ultimately, I think, a fairly balanced bill passed. 
And so we were very surprised less than three years later uh, that Congress would back at it again. Again, at the time, back three years ago, they said the American Invents Act was the most comprehensive reform to the patent system in over 50 years. And we thought maybe it'd have another at least you know 10 or 15 years, but we're back at it again. And unfortunately, it was a lot of the kind of wish list items that were eventually negotiated off the table and not included in, in the American Events Act that they're trying to resurrect and, and push back forward. And, you know, the, the, the pretense around this is that what's called a, a patent troll. This is a non-practicing entity that doesn't manufacture or commercialize. There, you know, there have been some outfits out there that just buy patent portfolios for the sole purpose to exert uh, those patents. And, and file suit against other players. And we are seeing this in, in uh, the device space a little bit as well. And, and again, we're, we certainly don't uh, support the abusive practices of some of, these, the, some of these folks and want to get at targeted ways to get at these ab abusive patent trolls. Uh, but the problem is that uh, you know, the legislation as proposed up on Capitol HR 9 on the House uh, goes well beyond addressing the targeted issues around trolls and would significantly alter the patent system you know, for all patent holders. You know, some of the most troubling uh, issues that pop up for us is kind of a, a mandatory fee-shifting provision, which means if you, you know, lose a, a, a patent case, uh, even if, you know, um, right now it's kind of hazy around what the criteria would be, but it, it's kind of a mandatory Fee shifting. So you, as a as a, a losing party, even if you had a valid case, would have to make the necessary filings to warrant why you shouldn't have to pay fees. And again, those filings cost cost money. And and again, the the, the parameters around which uh, the fee shifting would occur, um, we think that a more reasonable bar needs to be uh, established. And in fact, the Supreme Court itself have already taken cases, taken recent cases on fee shifting. It seems like they've been addressing it. So. You know, we, we don't think this legislation is, is necessary. And then related to the fee shifting, there's an issue of joinder uh, in the way that it's structured right now. Um, it would actually enjoin if, if the, the losing party itself didn't have the, the funds to pay the, uh, the fees, they could go downstream to get other entities that were investors in that, that company. So, for example, in the medical device space, you can imagine a situation where maybe a venture firm puts in 5 or $10 million into a company, uh, at that point, they know that their total exposure is that $10 million investment. If, if the company could go belly up, but at least there's a defined bottom on, that, on their investment of what they could lose. With the joint provisions, if the, the $10 million they invested in the company, that company ultimately was involved in lawsuit loss and had to pay the fees for the, for the prevailing party, there's a chance that, that and, and the company is out of money, that venture firm could be on the hook for um, 20, 30 million. There's no end to the, the downside loss that they may have exposure to. So, you know, fortunately, because of that, we've been working, partnering with the National Venture Capital Association, again, Pharma, Bio, Innovation Alliance, universities. We've all come together, uh, and I think really uh, articulating, educating members of Congress why uh, we need targeted solutions to this, not just this, this open ended approach that would really ultimately, if this House bill passed in its current form, it would dramatically undermine the value of patents and make it very, very challenging for innovative companies to defend themselves from infringing parties. So is the rationality, <clears throat> the rationale rather to going after those uh, affiliated parties, the investors, is it, and I know you didn't write the bill, so you can't say definitively, but I'm guessing it's because the, the thinking is that if you do that, that the folks who are backing the patent trolls will be less likely to back the patent trolls because they don't want to be on the hook if something goes awry down the road. 
Uh, yeah, the stated goal here is right, that, that you have, for the trolls themselves, sometimes you have literally a, cab, a company just established, and their only assets, assets are, you know, the, this patent portfolio, um, and that if they lose, then, you know, there would be no one to pay, so they have to have some sort of mechanism to go to the the, the investors who are, who are buying the patents themselves. Yeah, I think a lot of this stems from, quite frankly, you know, a lot of these large companies, the Apples, the the apples of the world and the Googles, you know, while they may have started with some patents, you know, they're really aggregators of technology. They, you know, the iPhone has so many different pieces it puts together and they're great at branding and marketing and sales and distribution. And some of their lobbyists and policy folks have said, we innovate too quickly. We can't possibly determine whether or not we're infringing in all these folks. And, you know, that's great for them. But uh, again, when you look at the types of, you know, in the life science industry, the amount of time, effort and resources it takes to bring a product to market, um, and also the the global competition and the, and the issues associated with counterfeiters or knockoff folks, you know, I, I think it'd be a, a real disservice to this country, to innovators, to to weaken, you know, what is the greatest uh, IP system in the world, and I think one of the cornerstones that's driven invention over the last you know 200 plus years in this country. I mean, you're right. That could be so chilling for the med tech industry, which is no stranger to patent disputes currently, even taking away the whole troll idea. I mean, there's obviously. Uh, disagreements between larger companies and smaller companies over who developed what level of technology, this would really seem to tip the scale in the favor of the larger companies. Absolutely. And, you know, we've had, uh, you know, some of our companies have been involved and successfully litigated against uh, larger players in the space. And, you know, they absolutely believe that, you know, if you have this, this fee-shifting regime in place that's, that's not in balance, um, you know, every six months when you're trying to negotiate a settlement here, you could be a small company with very capital efficient and have lower bills, and then if, you know, all of a sudden the opposing party could say, well, and by the way, our legal bills are up to $5 million, and then up to $7 million, and $10 million. And, you know, that's a variable that shouldn't have to weigh into the merits of the settlement, but it certainly would become a new one uh, if this regime was, was uh, switched in an unbalanced way. Great. Just another, uh, another log in the fire underneath MedTech, it seems like. But again, I, I, I think that, you know, collectively, I know our members have been actively involved. You said we've sent letters to Capitol Hill. We've lobbied on this. We've had folks testify. Um, and, you know, I, I think we feel confident that the, uh, the collective efforts of what we've been doing at MDMA, working with other, other associations and other, uh, other uh, uh, related spaces, uh, are, are start, starting, to, starting to see that pendulum swing back to a more balanced work product. But uh, certainly uh, not letting up. And, uh, you know, this could be something that, uh, it's no surprise, Google is the biggest, uh, spending the most amount of, in lobbying in Capitol Hill. This is their top priority. I think they, the last filings came out, they spent over $6 million lobbying Capitol Hill in, in Washington just in last quarter alone. And so we're certainly not taking anything for granted. And, and I think it's critical, I think, for all the folks even attending your meeting, if they haven't been watching this closely, to, to, to look at the legislation. You know, the letter we sent to Capitol Hill is on our website at uh, medicaldevices.org under the latest news. And, uh, again, I think it's something that uh, – and, and Life Science Alley has done a great job. They've been active uh, on this issue. So uh, I just think it's important we uh, make sure that we, again, get targeted solutions uh, to the problems, uh, not this overarching bill. I think the, Dean Kamen, who we work with, um, you know, prolific inventor, he was testifying up on Capitol Hill on this issue in the past, and uh, he had a great – analogy when he said, you know, if there's a waste paper basket, uh, fire my waste paper basket in my home office, I don't flood the house to put the fire out. You have a targeted solution. I think the same is needed here with this uh, patent legislation. Great. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to hearing more about that next week. And uh, we'll hear more about your other work at MDMA right after these messages. 
To register for the MedTech Investing Conference, visit medtechconference.com. While you're in Minneapolis, plan to attend our inaugural Payer Provider Venture Summit, a first-of-its-kind meeting targeting the hospitals and insurance companies leading healthcare reform. Go to ppvsummit.com. And we're back. Okay, a few months ago, uh, the Republicans uh, regained control of, of Congress and left many feeling that the medical devices taxes days might be numbered. Uh, has there been any movement in this area at all? Do you see an end to, an end to the tax? Actually, there has been uh, some movement. Just in the past a couple of weeks, there have been two congressional hearings uh, on the uh, impact of the tax. Uh, the Senate Finance Health Subcommittee held a hearing last week um, in which some industry folks and also two patients uh, testified, and you know, the, one of the patients particularly was very, I think, eloquent and, and passionate about the critical role that medical technology had saved and uh, played in saving his life, and um, that you know we shouldn't do anything that would be taking precious resources away from research and development that could lead to uh, further enhancements to medical te- technology, or again, the device tax taking two, approximately two billion dollars out a year, much of it from R&D. You know, it was not a, a well-thought-out policy that would be, um, again, taking money out of R&D that could ultimately slow uh, patient access to new therapies. So you know, that hearing took place. There was also a joint economic uh, committee hearing where Senator Klobuchar and, and Paulson participated, um, and uh, uh, the vice industry talked about, again, just the, the, the crushing impact this tax has had, particularly on you know smaller companies, but on, across the entire industry, from an employment standpoint, uh, from a, a, an R&D perspective, and really I think this comes down to, and, and more and more members of Congress I think appreciate this, that, um, again, we're slowing access, patient access to new therapies because it's forcing some R&D projects to be shelved um, uh, or a longer, longer run-up and, in, in, you know, limited dollars to invest, so it's going to delay patient access. and. Again, I think uh, uh, it's an area that uh, we'd certainly love to have seen action by now, but I think these hearings are a sign of positive direction. And a couple other data points I'll point out for, uh, for the listeners uh, is the fact that uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the House and the Senate agreed in an overwhelming bipartisan manner to uh, repeal the sustainable growth rate. It's called the DOC fix. This is the formula that was set up back in 1997. Um, uh, that uh, on how doctors treating Medicare patients would be reimbursed, but there had been some problems with the formula, and each year, usually on a one- or two-year basis, uh, there were impending cuts to take effect, and Congress would kind of kick the can down the road. If Congress didn't act uh, this past month, for example, physicians treating Medicare patients would have seen a 21% reduction in their reimbursement. Ultimately, there was a bipartisan agreement that needs to be fixed, and then the final hurdle was, well, how are we going to, you know, find the money to pay for this, because ultimately the total package was around $213 billion. Um, and ultimately what decided, and often in Washington, where there's a will, there's a way, uh, Congress moved forward, and um, of this $213 billion package, $141 billion was not offset. And so for some of our friends up on the Hill who say, well, they're with us, they know that the device tax is bad policy, but we need to find a way to, to offset those revenues. Um, 92 members of the U.S. Senate all voted for the SGR on offset, and so um, we think that's fertile ground. If, you know, we, we don't think it would be fair if a member of Congress said, well, I, I voted for that, but, but you're different. I mean, you really have to be held to the same standard. And the second point in a positive development, uh, back in March, um, the Congressional Budget Office, which is in charge of scoring pieces of legislation in, in the law, 
uh, actually went back and looked at the ACA. And they looked specifically at the costs associated with uh, the revenues for subsidies for the uninsured. So basically, they know that the government contribution they provide the uninsured to buy health insurance through the exchange. And as you know, you know some of the justification of the device tax that back in 2010, although we opposed it vehemently, but some of the proponents were saying, well, we need to generate this revenue to provide uh, for those uninsured to have the subsidies to buy health insurance through the exchange. Well, uh, what the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, estimated they thought they needed in revenue for subsidies in, in March of 2010 to what their last report came out and said that what they'd need over the next 10 years, it's $209 billion less, to, less today than it was back in March of 2010. So the point being, you could repeal this medical device tax. It may have a cost of, I think the last CBO number is approximately $26 billion over 10 years. And there's no cr hole created in the ACA. Again, they're, they're saying from the subsidy perspective, this is coming in $209 billion less than what they estimated when the tax was created in March of 2010. So, again, the other concern that folks up on the Hill say, well, if we get rid of the device tax, we'll somehow impact uh, the ability for uh, Americans to access health insurance. And, again, the, the numbers uh, don't support that claim. So based upon all of those factors, um, you know, right now uh, uh, the Congress is focused on trade issues, uh, and there's some dynamics surrounding the King v. Burwell Supreme Court decision but I suspect that uh, we'll see action on the medical device tax repeal, um, you know, uh, in the uh, in the next couple of months. Okay. Lastly, let's talk about the 21st century's cures. Uh, I understand that was introduced about a year ago. I know there's been a number of hearings and, and white papers and, and discussion about what uh, what should be part of that. Can you what is what is MDMA doing uh, about that? And can you tell us a little bit about about 21st century's cures? Sure. Well, you know, this has been a great bipartisan initiative led by Chairman Upton and Congresswoman DeGette uh, over the past, as you said, year or so. Uh, they've held dozens of congressional hearings, field visits, in which a number of our members have participated. But more importantly, it's not just about, you know, the medical device industry, the pharmaceutical industry. They've been engaging everyday people, patient groups, physicians, everyone in the healthcare delivery ecosystem. And, and with the overall objective is how do we accelerate patient access to new therapies? And, you know, from our members' perspective, you know, we've done a lot of work with the FDA and the user fee reauthorization uh, and some of the reforms there. And I'll say, you know, the trend lines, uh, it's still early, but the trend lines on FDA performance seem to be um, improving and, and um, again, still a lot of work to be done there. Uh, but because of that, and, again, talking to patient groups, you know, some of the issues certainly are around regulatory but also around reimbursement. And you know, the outsized role that the private payers having now and playing that gatekeeper role, and even with, you know, some dynamics at CMS with challenges navigating uh, CMS. And so, you know, much of our focus really with cures, and again, for feedback, and I think from some of the patient groups and others as well, is, you know, how do we narrow that gap between the regular, regulatory decisions that, CM, that FDA is making and getting, you know, coding coverage and payment in place on the reimbursement side? Um, and so, you know, there are some ideas that, uh, uh, folks have put out there, and again, I think this is really a, it's really the committee staff taking feedback from a, a number of stakeholders that um, would potentially establish, you know, interim coverage uh, for technologies um, um, uh, so that they would have broader distribution to and access to the patients, uh, um, you know, who who need those technologies. Um, you know, there are uh, obviously a, there are a lot of uh, 
provisions related to trying to make uh, the collection of data under clinical trials more efficient and effective. And I think um, there are some interesting ideas there. But it's, as you noted as well, you know, the, the, there's been a series of hearings. There was the discussion draft circulated a few months back um, uh, that was approximately 400 pages long. It's our understanding that that's going to be thinned out uh, considerably, and uh, next Thursday there's a hearing uh, before the committee, um, the Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, actually, it's this Thursday now. So, uh, and I think we expect legislation, the second draft of that, to be uh, uh, made public. Um, and so at that point, I would certainly uh, suggest that folks take a closer look at the, the draft, um, and if there are particular areas of, of support, to express that if there is a concern, let let folks know as well. Uh, I know that Chairman Upton has stated his desires to try to uh, bring this to the floor sometime in June. So um, again, another discussion draft coming out. I think there's some really good opportunities here that would help improve the process, both from a regulatory and reimbursement standpoint. Um, but the key here, and again, when you look at something so comprehensive, it's making sure that um, you know things are are uh, uh, provisions and the language mirror what the goals are. Uh, and then just getting through the House, obviously, you still have the Senate that, to deal with this. And uh, Chairman Alexander and Senator Murray have a parallel uh, effort underway looking at ways to – theirs is more limited to the FDA and not because uh, their committees of jurisdiction don't have a jurisdiction over a Medicare payment issues, reimbursement issues. Um, but they're looking into some ways to reform the process as well. So, you know, I think that the great news here is that you have members on both sides of the aisle saying we need to do more to accelerate patient access to these life-sustaining and life-saving uh, technologies on the drug, devices, biologic side. I think it's always very constructive when, again, members are working in a bipartisan manner on uh, really these, these patient-centric issues. Yeah, you mentioned that you've used the word bipartisanship probably, uh, I don't know, four or five times. Is this a is there on a, is there a sense that there's more agreement and more cooperation on Capitol Hill, or is this just speak to the fact that healthcare and med tech uh, really affects us all equally, and, and therefore is something for everyone to get behind? You know, I think historically medical device issues have always had strong bipartisan um, support. You know, any of the user fee agreements since I've been around, those those bills always go forward with you know 400 plus votes out of 435 in the in the House and over, you know, 90 plus votes in the Senate. So I think you're right. I think we always have had the, the good fortune of, of operating in a, in a bipartisan space. And even on the device tax, as you know, the, the Senate and a budget amendment uh, last Congress voted overwhelmingly 79 to, to 19 to support repeal of the medical device tax. That was a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats who supported that proposal. Unfortunately, I think that the politics of the issue and the broader ACA dynamic have kind of uh, hung up the issue a little bit. But as we stated earlier, with uh, the SGR uh, package moving forward uh, under a strong bipartisan vote, uh, right now uh, Congress is focusing on, on trade matters, and the Senate Finance Committee just passed out their trade bill uh, with 20, 20 to 8 vote. That included uh, a majority of the Democrats on the committee, all the Republicans and the majority of the Democrats on the, the Finance Committee. We'll see what happens when it comes to the, to the floor for a vote. But I think people are optimistic that, um, you know, they've been uh, – some of these things that have been kind of sitting on ice, you know, not, not always related to healthcare, but uh, issues that um, uh, folks want to get across the finish line. And I think, interestingly, here, it's, you know, these, the, the White House seems to be playing a more proactive role working uh, with both sides of the, the House and the Senate, Republicans and Democrats, to try to uh, 
to get things done, and, and we'll see. Hopefully this is a, a, the, the first in a series uh, and not uh, something that is a short, uh, short window. Oh, we hope so, and please uh, know you have an open invitation here on the podcast if you ever need to get the word out about something. Happy to uh, have you on again. Thanks. I know you guys are doing a great job uh, and really looking forward to uh, next week's uh, meeting. I think you have a great content. Uh, always, uh, it's one of my uh, must-attend meetings uh, of the year, so really looking forward to it. Great. We're very happy to have you. See you next week, Mark. Thanks, Tom. And thank you, Mark Leahy, for joining us on today's MedTech Talk podcast. You can hear more from Mark and many other MedTech leaders at the MedTech Investing Conference next week. Uh, it's May 6th. It's at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel, and you should be there. So go to medtechconference.com. Since we'll be at the conference next week, we will not be issuing a MedTech Talk podcast next week, but tune in two weeks from now when we'll have some reports from the conference and uh, some special guests as well. Thanks very much, and we will see you in Minneapolis. Join the innovators, entrepreneurs, and investors who are changing healthcare at MedTech Investing Conference on May 6th in Minneapolis. The premier event in MedTech Investing will bring together the industry's investors, entrepreneurs, strategics, and regulatory professionals in one of the country's richest MedTech communities, Minneapolis. This must-attend conference will leave attendees with the insights and connections necessary to find their own sure path to success. To register for the MedTech Investing Conference, go to www.medtechconference.com.